0: Alright, what's crackin'? Back into Deleuze and Guattari here. That is we're continuing on with Antidopus. Uh I'll you know, I'll do each of these chapters. There are four of them, so you can expect four parts, although the third chapter is long, so that might be a little might have to break that up a little bit but, you know, we'll see how it goes. So I'll just jump right into this here. I don't want to waste people's time. Uh, what they're trying to get at with this chapter, at least as a general preface, is uh, a critique mounting a really um, strong critique of Freud, specifically the Oedipus complex. So there are some distinctions to be made here. They don't necessarily uh, take up beef with psychoanalysis as like a... You know, a, a, a practice. what their real aim is is this thing called Oedipus that, to put it as simply as I can, just simply is is too simple an idea for them. It doesn't encapsulate the workings of what what they introduced to us in the first chapter, the idea of um, desiring production, or machines or syntheses, and how these things work together. So for them, uh, it, it, Oedipus kind of nullifies all that or homogenizes all that and just places everything under the spectral light of mommy and daddy, which for them is simply reductive. So they are not only critiquing Freud for like a number of reasons, and other people have mounted these similar critiques, uh, like we can hear the resonances of similar things in thinkers like Baudrillard and and even Foucault to some extent but what they do that's really uh, special is that they supplant it with something else. So they are saying that on the one hand, Freud is limited for X, Y, and Z reasons. But we can say that we have a better way to understand the world precisely because we have, you know, we uh, propose that the world is actually like this. For them, kind of schizo, uh, schizophrenic framework uh, that they... Propose as an alternative to the uh, Oedipus or the Oedipalization of the world. So, on the periphery, some of the figures they, they take on specifically are thinkers like, um, are uh, Melanie Klein and, and Jacques Lacan, two two thinkers for them that are really uh, that really take up this psychoanalytic framework in a way that for them is wrong, because you know they say that. We have to look at the world in this other way. But, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more specifically. But I will say right off the bat, uh, as for the Lacan stuff, I know not as um, as much as I should. So I'm going to be vague going into that, where I'll just present what I think I know. Uh, because I know that Lacanians, this isn't like just Lacanians, like for any theorist um, or followers of any theorist. Like, it's important to get their ideas right. So I'm going to say off the bat that I'm going to be deliberately vague and just try to deliver the words or uh, communicate the words that Deleuze and Guattari use against uh, Lacan because that's really my only connection to it. I know it might be bad practice, but I don't have time to read Lacan for now. (laughs) It's too much of it that one would have to read to actually understand it. So they lay out their project almost as follows, at least in this chapter. They suggest that wouldn't the real difference, and I'll explain what that is in a second, but wouldn't the real difference be between Oedipus, structural as well as imaginary, and something else that all the Oedipuses crush and repress, desiring production, the machines of desire that no longer allow themselves to be reduced to the structure of any more than to persons, and that constitute the real in itself, beyond or beneath the symbolic as well as the imaginary. So what they're trying to clarify here is that their project is not simply in the service of challenging what might appear on the surface of the Oedipal imaginary. So when one thinks of Oedipus, you know, we think of uh, the relationship between mommy and daddy and a a child, and specifically how that triad affects the child and has has a place within society. So what they say uh, alternatively is that our criticism of Oedipus therefore risks being judged totally superficial and petty as if as if it applied solely to an imaginary Oedipus and aimed at the role of parental figures without at all penetrating the structure and its symbol- order of symbolic positions and functions. So I think that this is one of the, um, how they get at it by you know proposing their alternative view of the world but it also shows that they are trying to mount a critique that is not, that is much more nuanced than what some other uh, thinkers may have been proposing at the time or before then. So one way that they approach this more nuanced um, endeavor is by taking the unconscious as one example. So they suggest that the unconscious is not something that necessarily symbolizes. It's not something that belongs to the domain of um representation so simply in fact the unconscious like everything else for them and this is what constitutes the real i'm using air quotes the real because everything is operates at the level of a machine where all machines can you know be broken down or all things can be broken down into their machinic functions so the leg machine meets the hip machine which meets the torso machine which you know knee bone meets the whatever the book machine meets the hand machine the book machine meet, meets the eye machine the telephone machine meets the and it goes on and on so for them the unconscious is no different the the unconscious may very well exist so freud isn't wrong in that respect but what it resembles is not uh, a symbolizing apparatus that's that is somehow removed from the uh, from the, its interaction with other things, because that would constitute a machine, right? Because we can think of Deleuze and Guattari as thinkers of um, thinkers of syntheses. They think about things in terms of their being recognized not as a thing in itself, right, but as it's having a, a relationship with another thing that it can form something of a synthesis with. So for them, they want to enter the unconscious into that exact same framework or that exact same, I guess, categorization of a thing, right? So the only way we can understand the unconscious is not by proposing it to be some transcendent, transcendental thing that doesn't actually have an attachment to anything else, but just represents, just symbolizes. It, in fact, has a number of other connections. Connect to the, I don't know, the brain machine, to the child machine, to the childhood memory machine, and so on and so forth. So for Deleuze and Guattari, uh, the psychoanalyst or the idopolist renders the unconscious a, a theater or a stage for them, simply a zone that projects other things. That that's all it does. It doesn't. It's not you know something that connects to other things. It's just like a just a television screen. Uh, so in that in that way, they characterize the psychoanalyst as being the thinker or the agent of anti-production. That is, they oppose the very logic of machines because machines produce. They produce perhaps not by virtue of themselves, but by virtue of their coming into contact with other things, other machines. But that is precisely what they do. They produce, whereas the psychoanalyst is trying to wrest the world from this reality principle. And I don't mean reality principle in the psychoanalytic sense, but the idea of the real, according to Deleuze and Guattari. Trying to take it from that to give it something of a transcendent figure, a kind of transcendent character. Try to make it more than it really is. So if we have a system that is psychoanalysis or Oedipalization that tries to render transcendent or tries to uh, make law that which is not, you know, not so, doesn't give itself over to that so easily, then that must rely on some fundamental axioms because there have to be principles or rules that legitimize these these beliefs. So one that they kind of uh, they address is the idea of lack. So if we remember from the first chapter, they express the idea that uh, it is wrong to associate the desire with lack. So desire does not, or they actually make a distinction, they say that kind of oppressive desire is is a desire predicated on lack. So desire that where you want something that you don't have and you know you feel bad because you don't have it but that lack is actually um, God, my words are not flowing so well today Uh, that lack is actually driving you in some way or other that is a kind of bad desire whereas what the desire they uh, propose in response to that is the, the idea of desiring production where we are desiring to always be in contact with other machines and all machines are desiring to be in contact with other machines so lack doesn't even enter the equation for them so this extends into the idea of, into the domain of psychoanalysis where the whole discourse around lack especially as it relates to gender differences or the differences between the sexes is is incredibly problematic for them it's it's problematic and for them it's also philosophically and structurally kind of unsound so what they suggest of freud is that the uh, difference between the sexes that Freud draws is tied together by a common thread. And that common thread for them uh, that they identify is the penis. So the penis is something the boy has, ostensibly, and it is something that the girl desires. So therefore, this, this kind of idea of the penis attaches um, the two of them together. And it is by virtue of them being attached together that Freud is able to make some pretty uh outlandish type claims. So as they write, song fifty nine, something common to the two sexes is required, but something that will be lacking in both, and that will distribute the, the lack in two non symmetrical series, establishing the exclusive use of the disjunctions you are a girl or boy, such as the case with Oedipus and its resolution different in boys and in girls. Such is the case with castration and its relationship to Oedipus in both instances. Castration is at once the common lot, that is, the prevalent and transcendent phallus, and the exclusive distribution that presents itself in girls as desire for the penis, and in boys as fear of losing it, or refusal of a passive attitude. So what Freud does here, and they pick up on this, is quite clever. Freud imbues or or, um, kind of gives... The sex is a certain value, and a certain value that is predicated on this common denominator, this what they call a transcendent phallus, and it is because of that that they are able to then psychoanalyze the children because they both created the problem to which they only they have the solution. So this idea doesn't it doesn't exist in nature. This uh, idea of lack, as in terms of one's genitalia. And so, what Deleuze and Guattari do do is oppose that idea, where they say the following Neither is there anything in common between the two sexes, nor do they cease communicating with each other in a transverse mode where each subject possesses both of them, but with the two of them partitioned off, and where each subject communicates with one sex or the other in another subject. Such is the law of partial objects. Nothing is lacking. Nothing can be defined as a lack, nor are the disjunctions in the unconscious ever exclusive, but rather the object of a properly inclusive use that we must analyze. So again, here we're hearing the idea of uh, kind of the formulation of machines resonating here. That is, all machines, although they are different, do come in contact with one another, and the synthesis that that contact forms is in itself a kind of new paradigm that is comprised of two or more parts that are in themselves different, but dependent on one another to be to form that whole, that kind of partial whole, which then constitutes them. So it's kind of like a circular effect here. So, okay, uh, maybe I should give an example. Let's say, for instance, there was a ball. Now, this ball was pretty undescript. It could serve as a Soccer ball, or a basketball, or dodgeball, or whatever. So let's say a child were to pick up this ball, and at that moment, the ball were to serve the would belong or would um, exist as a soccer ball. So then, in that moment, what we have emerge is a soccer player and a soccer ball, kind of grouped together around the idea of a the game soccer or football for European people. Um, So in that moment, there's this kind of synthesis between the soccer ball and the child or the person, whatever, um, that gives them their identities but does not always already constitute that identity. So before they entered that agreement, that kind of machinic synthesis, neither of them had those titles. So neither of them, the, the ball was just a ball, wasn't a soccer ball, and the child was, you know, just a child, not a soccer player. So then, so I think this is a pretty germane example in that the ball then let's say is picked up by a child who wants to use it as a basketball, you know. So then different titles are then assumed or taken on. So there is some kind of fluidity here, but it's a fluidity that in their synthesizing, in their synthesis, kind of concretizes them for a moment. So it galvanizes both of those two um, two actors in that moment, galvanizes them, but then from which they can eventually, or whenever they want, uh, come apart from it. So what the psychoanalyst might do in response to this, um, the kind of illustration I, I drew here, would be to suggest that you know there is a real essence of each of those two different um beings in that uh in that moment so the ball has you know a ball essence and we can then get at the roots of that by giving it you know endowing with the, it with this identity and then with the child you know we say you know deep down you are really just a child and we know x y and z qualities about a child so we by virtue of that must ask you x y and z questions to comply with that so for Deleuze and Guattari they propose that this is an analytical fallacy that is Freud assumes or the psychoanalytic imaginary assumes that there is a subject uh, defined as a fixed ego of one sex or the other who necessarily experiences as a lack his and their subordination to the tyrannical complete object so the tyrannical complete object being in their uh, estimation, this phallus, right? This phallus that is you know unchanging, undifferentiated, always uh, a matter of desire, something that people need in order to have power, for instance, uh, whereas for them, that's the totally incorrect axiom. like it does not hold up to very much scrutiny. So what is also embedded within this discourse is the idea of a subject, right, which was I kind of alluded to earlier. So the idea of there being, Uh, individual fantasies and by virtue of that these problems being reduced to individual problems so i think an easy way we can understand that is kind of the belief that everything is uh, personal as opposed to political so if someone has uh, a problem with it's undergoing some kind of issue the tendency in our oedipal world is to say okay well let's fix you let's straighten you out so that the you can then fit within the social order. Let's, you know, um, institutionalize you or, or whatever to make sure that you can exist in this world. But that is not the only, um, the only subject of interest for the psychoanalytic imaginary, because they also consider the way that groups work in this way as well. So, And I actually did that, the kind of, I think, the seminal Freudian text for that on here somewhere if you look at the channel under the categories under Freud. The idea for Freud is that generally, uh, to put it quite simply, that group psychology is not about people getting stupider in group settings, and that in fact there's a kind of cohesion between people uh, that is guided by love and that these people find something in being with others that share a kind of common goal that they can't really get in an individual setting. So what Deleuze and Guattari are saying here is that, okay, well, maybe at first glance, the the idea of group fantasy might be a better solution to the individual fantasy, because at least with groups, there would have to be some kind of a... Um, an acknowledgement of a, of a kind of agreement that has occurred between more than one person with themselves, which would then have to extend beyond the domain of an individual. But for Deleuze and Guattari, that's not the, that's not the case, where they, they end up saying that, you know, this group fantasy discourse is really just another homogenizing tool. But that doesn't mean that for them the group fantasy is totally lost, or that the potential behind it is lost. They say, in fact, the revolutionary pole of group fantasy becomes visible, on the contrary, in the power to experience institutions themselves as mortal, to destroy them or change them according to the articulations of desire and the social field, by making the death instinct into a veritable institutional activity. So in this process, one that we could um, kind of attached to I think many kind of many revolutionary movements throughout the course of history the idea that um, people come together together in groups can have really devastating effects for the formations of power and institutions and law and all that where they say that the group fantasy uh, actually I'll jump back a little bit so but group fantasy no longer has anything but the drives themselves as subject and the desiring machines formed by them with the revolutionary institutions the group fantasy includes the disjunctions in the sense that each subject discharged of his personal identity so i'll uh, say here kind of stripped of the what they've been Oedipalized or kind of projected with in the psychoanalytic imaginary that is Im- Im- imbued with an ego that you know determines who they are so they are stripped of that in the group group fantasy formation Uh, stripped of his personal identity but not of his singularities and enters into relations with others following the communication proper to partial objects everyone passes into the body of the other of the body without organs so the body without organs being a they describe at one point as like a slippery thing being a kind of um i'm gonna say blank slate but i say it with reservation because it's not really a blank slate But the body without organs is kind of the the screen onto which things can be projected and then by virtue of things being projected it then houses the meaning projected onto it so let's say let's go back to the kid with the ball so when the kid picks up the ball let's say they're playing uh, in a field okay that field operates as a body without organs where however the kids choose to operate with the ball on that field, on that empty space, on that body without organs will then determine the body without organs. So you have a child playing with a ball as a, as a soccer player, as a, as a soccer ball and then the field becomes a soccer field because of these organs kind of being thrown onto it or these machines existing on, onto, onto it like that but this presents a problem so where does the subjectivity lie in that because that would imply that there's kind of like an active subject you know determining what will become of the relationship with the ball and the, and the child like the child being the one that determines it but in some ways the ball might be the one determining it if the ball has um, certain patterns on it like if it has you know the kind of curvy lines that you'd find on a basketball or if it has the checkered pattern of a, of a soccer ball or if it has a kind of um, bumpy texture of, of like a dodgeball or kickball or something, then, you know, in a sense that ball will be determining what it's used for and then what the field, the body without organs, what kind of identity it will take on, right? But if we are really just dealing with things in their most undescript way where the ball really is just a round ball and the child is a just a regular child, we can think that maybe the the how these things will come into play with one another is left up to chance to some extent because it really, it's a game time decision what this ball is going to be used for, pun intended. All right, so then this gets into the broader question about syntheses. So they present us with three syntheses in this chapter. And this is, in my mind, the most complicated thing, and I have trouble reconciling it. Reconciling them or figuring out what exactly they mean and how they differ from one another. So they are as follows. There's the connective synthesis, the disjunctive synthesis, and the conjunctive synthesis. So there are two ways that I want to try and propose that these things exist. So we can think of these three syntheses as being periods of time, where the so-called primitive time would correspond to a connective synthesis, kind of formulation. The industrial age, if we can think of that, or the movement of religion, or sorry, let me, let me, back up here so we have in the connective synthesis the the primitive age so the pre-state age then we have the uh, disjunctive synthesis that is one that is formulated under the heading of like uh, under state formation or under tyrant under kings and emperors and all that stuff and then the conjunctive synthesis existing under industrialization and capitalism so okay i really hope that i'm not fucking this up because i i'm fairly confident that I'm somewhere around the mark here. So when we think of syntheses in these ways as being temporally contingent, well, let's move through them one by one. So the connective synthesis is the one where uh, people have a direct relationship, in a sense, with all things around them. So the land is something that, you know, determines you to some extent. Where the land machine meets the human machine, and then there is like a, a a direct need for that relationship. Think of like hunters and gatherers, for instance, where the people are totally dependent on the the land being something that will provide for them, almost because the land has a mind of its own, and the, you know we must sacrifice ourselves to to feed the sun, right? To then keep the 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 growth going. Well, that's actually. Scratch that example, but there's a direct relationship between things in a kind of r- romantic way. I think it would help. It would help for us to think about it romantically to kind of uh, grasp it better. That is a more fruitful connection to the land and to other people and and all that. So then comes along the age of the state and the tyrant. This is the dis- disjunctive synthesis age where then you have someone coming in that is an emperor, tyrant, or something who then partitions off the land and says, you know, this part of land has this function, this one has that function, and so on and so forth. And then you people, you slaves, are going to work on this plot of land and you over here are going to work on this one, and so on and so forth. So it's kind of like the introduction of a caste system or a hierarchization of, this, um, of the land, essentially. So then the land is split up, and by virtue of its being partitioned and then people being partitioned according to the land, what we have is a disjunction, right? A kind of disconnection between people and between land, where people who are um, forced into a certain plot of land or a certain area don't, can't be said to have a, like a kind of natural connection to the land, where well, there isn't a natural synthesis that occurs, but it is a disjunctive one in that it's kind of forced force together like a puzzle piece that doesn't fit in into the puzzle but that you know if you hit it hard enough and mold it you can get it to go in there so then finally we enter the conjunctive conjunctive synthesis that is the one of capitalism where there is a kind of a superficial return to a limitlessness to the limit limitlessness present to us or made manifest in the connective age where you know, there's a direct relation to, uh, you know, things be, you know, with the um, relative de-territorialization of the, of the globe and of people. Uh, anyways, anywhere's anyone is free to go where they please. But of course, not everyone, because, you know, people don't have the same privileges really across the board. But people have generally, maybe I'll say, uh, the privilege to go wherever they want, to learn about anything they want that really represents a, a a new formulation, a new system. But there's also this this um, these axioms being placed upon us, or these limits that are placed upon us, but they are limits that aren't necessarily uh, worked from without by like an emperor or by a tyrant or something. Instead, they are very much embedded within the very logic of capitalism, where it's like, Um, you know, liberate yourself, but not too much, or be a revolutionary, but not too much. You know, it's kind of like the Starbucks revolutionary ideals, right? Like, or in the case of Canada currently, like banning plastic, single-use plastic, like as though that's going to make things better, as though that's going to push us in a better direction. So I think roughly we could think about these syntheses in that way, like as a temporally contingent um, or as temporally contingent phenomena but then I think we can think about them in a more um, here and now type way where people and all things for that matter always meet up to some extent with these various syntheses so we can have connective syntheses today just as we can have uh, disjunctive syntheses and then conjunctive syntheses so it it would be too simple to just say that the so-called primitive age was uh, one guided by connective and then disjunctive or disconnective or whatever and then conjunctive. Instead, we have to be prepared to acknowledge that these all these syntheses are working at, at all at the same time, but that at various periods one of them you know tends to take um, kind of take take command. I would say. So today us belonging to the to the logic of the conjunctive synthesis, something like the Oedipal paradigm or Oedipalization might seem kind of strange because that is a territorializing. That is, um, it kind of, it closes off, forecloses possibility and doesn't really give way to the limitlessness present in, in uh, advanced capitalism per se. So there's that kind of weird relationship there, but as they tell us in other texts, and I'm sorry I gotta, you know, jump to another one, and I we I've talked about it here with a friend of mine, uh, the from a thousand plateaus apparatus of capture, which I definitely recommend people listen to, but we could understand, um, Oedipus or Oedipalization as what they call a compensatory reterritorialization. So in a world that is moving very sporadically and out of control, uh, we we take comfort in attaching certain significance to various different um, institutions. So here we have Oedipus, but other people might attach certain significance to the state. Some might attach certain significance to, I don't know, gender differences, certain significance to religion, you know, go on. the, the, The possibilities are endless here. And this really portends, or this sets the stage for uh, a line they give us in the third chapter, which we'll get to next time, where they essentially say that you know maybe capitalism is good because it does break down things. It it doesn't you know foreclose or homogenize, but the, it's not so simple as that. So don't don't typing like oh, you idiot. But better than capitalism for them in crushing the kind of. Homogenizing tendency of utopolization is for them schizoanalysis or the schizophrenic. So, the schizophrenic was introduced to us in the first chapter as being that figure that opposes all restraint, that opposes all institutional kind of formations and codes and conduct, and is kind of free to traverse anywhere that's kind of um, un, un, um, unfiltered where they say that schizophrenia is for them, so on page 69, is the land of the unknown. So in this land, binary distinctions come crashing down, like the distinction between man and woman, for instance, where these two fold into one another and and blend with one another, really tearing apart the uh, idea about castration and lack and desire, Um, and you can, you know, insert any kind of binary here will will eventually get crushed under the weight of the psychoanalytic deterritorialization or kind of freedom but i should say that and i think a lot of people get this wrong i think a lot of people believe that deterritorialization is a good thing whereas for deleuze and guattari it's not so good all the time like it provide it sometimes presents kind of radical possibility revolutionary possibility but at the same time it is The logic that guides, you know, emperors being able to come in and de-territorialize, so that is kind of dig up the land, essentially, and then redistribute it because it's been de-territorialized. It's been taken apart. So it's important to kind of, to know that it's neither, you know, a really good thing, nor is it a really bad thing. Okay, so let's get into some, one of the more difficult kind of philosophical, uh, philosophical ideas they uh, contend with. So they take up Kant here. So they say that Kant was interested in finding out if there was a what he called uh, a criteria imminent to understanding that could then distinguish between so-called legitimate and illegitimate uses of the syntheses of consciousness. So, as they write, in the name of transcendental philosophy, that is the imminence of criteria, He therefore denounced the transcendent use of syntheses such as appeared in metaphysics. In like fashion, we are compelled to say that psychoanalysis has its own metaphysics. Its name is Oedipus. And that a revolution, this time materialist, can proceed only by way of critique of Oedipus, by denouncing the illegitimate use of the syntheses of of the unconscious as found in Oedipal psychoanalysis, so as to discover a transcendental unconscious defined by the imminence of its criteria and a corresponding practice that we shall call schizoanalysis. So the idea of imminence of criteria is how this criteria, the legitimate form, is found within schizoanalysis because of its materialist um, its faithfulness or its fidelity to a materialist mind frame. That is one that is rooted in what they call the real and the schizo for them explodes the illegitimate kind of genealogy performed by uh, the uh, Oedipalization or by Oedipus but the existence of the schizo is interesting so the schizo might be might be said to have always already existed the schizo was present in the connective synthesis and the disjunctive one you know the the mad person, as Foucault described it, maybe might fit that criterion. But they also say something kind of interesting. So they suggest that in the psychoanalytic paradigm, that is the Oedipal psychoanalysis, that there is present a double bind. So this is the idea that psychoanalysis essentially just creates the problems that it purports to solve. So there's no actually getting out of it, because according to Deleuze and Guattari, who suggest that according to Oedipal psychoanalysis, either you will f- be uh, psychoanalyzed and we will fix you and straighten you out, essentially make you proper for society, or you will keep going down the kind of, you you will keep being fucked up by your neuroses or whatever, and you will go down that route. So for Deleuze and Guattari they're like, well, both of these options seem to suck. So the schizo is like, essentially the the one positing no to that those two that double bind so for them um, it is in the sense that oedipus should be presented as a series or an oscillation between two poles the neurotic identification and the internalization that is said to be normative on either side is oedipus the double impasse and if a schizo is produced here as an entity this occurs for the simple reason that there is no other means of escaping this double path where normality is no less blocked than neurosis and where the solution offers no more of a way out than does the problem. Hence the schizo's withdrawal to the body without organs. So the body without organs being that zone that doesn't ascribe by that same uh, kind of predetermined logic. So the body without organs for them was first marked by races, cultures, uh, and their gods. This is on page 85. So races, cultures, gods... All being their own things, of course, represent different intensities or different kind of possibilities or zones of possibilities on the body without organs. And because these things are never galvanized completely, they're never set in stone, they are always in flux, they're always changing. And the person, the kind of schizo figure, is free to move around, free to move from pole to pole. But that, you know, will inevitably lead to conflict like the ones seen throughout the course of history where various, um, you know, identities butt up against others, but that none of these identities are, you know, determined in advance. They are by virtue of their being projected onto the body without organs determined. And because that projection is a rather flimsy one, and it's simply a representation, kind of a um, an illustration, it is then susceptible to flux and change, just like the idea that man and woman can be you know, they fold into one another, change, any of these different identities can fold together and change on the body without organs. So the schizo is ontologically, so they are, their essence, their being, is much more in line with the movements of reality because these movements are always determined by the syntheses that are occurring all the time. And like I was saying, these syntheses are what constitute the two poles that make the synthesis, therefore calling into question any, um, the permanence of any of either of the identities of the things that make up the synthesis, that is, their um, being a thing in themselves, gets thrown out the window because no structure for them exists prior to these syntheses. So, no structure for them exists in the mind, divorced from reality, divorced from material, divorced from these connections, these machines. Everything is in, in instead, and this is on 97. Uh, if structures do in fact exist, they do so in immediate reality. So schizoanalysis is is highly radical. And for them, it's, it is a form of psychoanalysis, if we take the kind of um, the form that psychoanalysis assumes, that is a process of, you know, engaging with someone. It is for them then, uh, or I should say, schizoanalysis, therefore, does not hide the fact that it is a per, uh, it is a political and social psychoanalysis, a militant psychoanalysis. So it doesn't shy away from questions that pertain to the social field, the socius. So the goal of schizoanalysis for them is to analyze the specific nature of the libidinal investments in the economic and political spheres, and thereby to show how, in the subject who desires, desire can be made to desire its own repression. So this is Nietzschean, uh, coming out of the genealogy of morality, I think we could say pretty safely, the idea that uh, the ascetic ideal, like someone saying who says no to themselves or hates themselves or, you know, wanting to atone for the supposed sins they've committed, you know, they whip their back or hate themselves as an effect. So what they want to say is that schizoanalysis can actually get at the heart of the root of those uh, kind of the hatred of oneself in order to present like a kind of possibility for anyone, as opposed to the Oedipal psychoanalysis that wants to really close you in, right? It wants to deny you the possibility. So it's no coincidence then, or it's not a surprise that they say that Oedipus is depends upon discrimination and it depends upon hierarchy because these are two things that like things to be closed. They like things to not have contact with a kind of exteriority to them. So, here are some of the differentiations between Oedipus and between desiring production, indicative of schizoanalysis. So, for schizoanalysis or desiring production, it predicates itself on partial objects or non specific ones, that is, ones that aren't totalizing, uh, inclusive or non restrictive um, uh, formula, and then it is more. It has a firm connection to nomadic or polyvocal um, uh, configurations. Whereas for Oedipus, what we have are global and specific, uh, we have exclusive and restrictive, and then segregative and biunivocal. So, really, the, the way that they bifurcate the two here I think is pretty clear. Like, one is pretty restrictive and one is much more open. So as opposed to psychoanalysis, as these, this, these distinctions might make clear, uh, desire and desires lack, and, and the Oedipal framework has a very firm connection to all these institutions that comprise this world. So it's no surprise then that there are people that claim that um, psychoanalysis actually helps to some extent, or it kind of um, uh, mitigates some of the burdens imposed by these institutions. That is because these institutions set up in advance the problem that psychoanalysis can claim to solve. So, one of the ways, or one of the ways that Deleuze and Guattari kind of think about that is in terms of prohibition. So, for Freud, the idea was that the prohibition of various things, incest, for instance, uh, by the law, would then um, would then point to the extent to which they are desired. Whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, they say that that it is the law apparatus in prohibi- in its prohibition of something, that enters that thing into human desire, that propels it into human desire. So, eatable desires are the ones that the ones that we see in the eatable framework are just kind of bait. They're kind of red herrings, you know, to try and convince us of them being um, real desires, right? Being things that somehow transcend. Our current material situation in favor of these universal, you know, truths. Whereas the schizo, schizoanalysis has a much firmer connection to a social field that is not simply predicated by, like, you know, five institutions like church, state, family, uh, school, and you know, health or something like that. You know, insert anything here, but has a more organic, more holistic connection to the social field as something more than just those um, those things. So these ideas are really explained, I think, in better detail, a little clearer, in A Thousand Plateaus, especially the kind of first few chapters of that. So I definitely recommend, you know, checking those out. But I think on that note, uh, there's not much more to say. If anyone's read this, they would probably I don't know if they'd agree with me but i'd say that it's pretty repetitive like there are times when i wonder if it's really necessary for freud to tell us or for Deleuze and Guattari to tell us that you know oedipus relies too heavily on the, the family or this triangulation between mommy daddy and child uh but with that you know it's still a great chapter and overall a great book and next time we'll get into the third chapter i don't even think i said the name of this god the second chapter here oh what's it called here at the end psychoanalysis and familialism the holy family i don't know why the hell i didn't say that before but then we'll move into next time the uh chapter on savages barbarians and civilized men which gives like like (laughs) it should be like three chapters really but gives a very uh detailed account of kind of the development of present-day society from the so-called primitive age through the imperialistic and barbaric ones all the way up to today so that's a that's a monolith that one but on that note for anyone that listened i hope you got something out of this uh and you know if you had any comments you know how to do it But on that note